You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Two weeks ago, if you were here, Pastor Russ preached to us from Luke chapter 10 in the Good Samaritan, and the title of his sermon was True Justice. And we've been reminded again, as Pastor Joel has reminded us in our prayer and in the events that we have seen in the past week of the deplorable violence and the inhumanity and injustice that plagues our world. What hope is there for true victory over evil in this world? As Pastor Joel was praying Is there a point to our praying like that? Is there a difference between the way Jesus approaches the need for victory over evil and the way that we are attempted attempted to, to approach it apart from him? How do we mourn and grieve over evil while simultaneously believing that there will be victory over evil? Just got back from eight days of travel, and because I was out of town, I couldn't talk to my neighbor in person, so I sent her a text message. She is a rabbi in a local synagogue, and as horrified as I was by the attacks from last Saturday, I knew that it paled in comparison to what she and her family and her community were going through, and I let her know that I was praying for them as they grieved and as uh, they dealt with anger and sadness. And she, in response, expressed a deep uh, appreciation and said that although her immediate family and friends were all safe, they were all deeply traumatized and all connected to people who were either missing or dead. And then she ended her text to me with these words, this week has been overwhelming Le shalom, toward peace and justice for all people, simply replied, le shalom indeed, amen. The next day, I was on a prayer call with uh, some leaders from the organization I helped to lead for our denomination, Mission to North America, and when we were taking prayer requests, the leader of our chaplain's ministry asked for prayer for the chaplains who were serving on the strike carrier warship that was headed to the Gulf. These chaplains who minister to enlisted men and women uh, potentially heading into harm's way. Our English as a second language ministry leader asked for prayer for the Iranian ESL students who we were ministering to in our churches who are afraid of being attacked even though they fled Iran. The end of this week, I was at Wheaton College for our board meeting, and among the prayer requests was to pray for the Palestinian and Arab college students at Wheaton who are anxious and concerned even though they're Christians at a Christian college. What does Jesus have to say to us about all of this violence and trauma and inhumanity and evil? Is there hope for victory? What we will see in our passage this morning is that Jesus does have something to say 
There is real hope for victory over evil, but it is not neat and it is not comfortable and it is not a message you can tie in a bow in a box and give it to someone. The only way that our world knows how to pursue victory is through violence. Even if the victory that we are seeking is victory over evil, the only means that we have to attain that victory is through violence. And Jesus' approach to victory then is scandalous. As theologian Stanley Hauerwas writes, the kingdom that Jesus brings is one of gentleness and humility that cannot help but reveal the violence of the world. We will not, he says, therefore be surprised then after Jesus has plainly said what, who he is and what he's come to do, that everything he says and does invites controversy and resistance. I started writing this sermon and I almost like Pastor Joe who gave like five stanzas or something like that to sneak in five points. And I had four points, and then I had three points, and then I think, well, I really only have one point. I really only have one point, and that is the victory of uh, the scandal of God's victory. The scandal of God's victory. Let's situate ourselves in Matthew's gospel as we begin to talk about this scandal of God's victory. The first four chapters in the Gospel of Matthew are essentially Matthew's introduction to his whole book. Then, there, then Matthew has five uh, major discourses in the body of the book from chapter 5 to chapter 25, and the conclusion of his book are chapters 26 to 28. And for each of those five discourses, uh, Matthew makes a bridge statement, something like, after uh, saying these things or these instructions or these parables, and, and you find that kind of statement at the end of his Sermon on the Mount in, John, in Matthew 7, 28. You find it again in chapter 13 and verse 53 and chapter 19 and verse 1 and chapter 26 and verse 1. And what do we find in verse 1 of our passage when, when Matthew says, then when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went off from there to teach and preach in, this, in their cities. And so guess where we are? We are transitioning from a major discourse, Jesus' sermon on mission, where Jesus predicts opposition for the 12 disciples. He predicts opposition, and, he, and then we're transitioning to the section where we see that opposition then explained implicitly and explicitly. You see, here's, here's an aspect of the scandal of God's victory. Our passage follows on the heels of Jesus' message to the 12 about the opposition that they'll face in their work as ambassadors of his kingdom. They're not supposed to be surprised that their good work is met with suspicion and rejection and persecution. If they are like Jesus, then others will react to them the way they reacted to him. 
Jesus said to them in chapter 10 and verse 25, if they call the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And now he transitions to the implication of this for members of his kingdom. We read this in verses 2 and 3. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Now, Matthew doesn't tell us until we get to chapter 14 why John was in prison. But he gets word in prison that Jesus is preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and that Jesus is doing the miraculous And you and I need to recognize and know that John and Jesus had the same message. In chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, in verse 1, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's victory over evil is coming. You need to repent. In chapter 4 and verse 17, after Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness, Matthew says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So why John's question now? John is the one who said to the people in chapter 3 and verse 11 to 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into this barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenched fire. John says when the mightier one comes, he's bringing victory with him. He's going to purify this world of all that is against God's uh, uh, righteousness and justice. Why is John now doubting? I'm going to answer this question in a second, but let me just tell you this. (laughs) Let me say this to you. Doubt is not the same as unbelief. To experience doubt, even as a believer in Jesus, to experience doubt, even as a Christian, is not a cause for shame. That's not the scandal. Sometimes Christians can be fooled into thinking that if they have any doubt about any aspect of the Christian faith, that they're unacceptable to God. And this is often an an aspect of Christianity that those who are not Christians don't understand either. It is inherently the case, if you're not a Christian, that you've got doubts about the faith. (laughs) You doubt the authenticity of the Bible. You doubt the authenticity of Jesus and his resurrection, his claim to be the way, the truth, and the life. You doubt the necessity of the salvation he offers. You doubt the reality of heaven and hell. We have a culture that exalts skepticism. Dr. Dallas Willard, a philosophy professor who who taught at USC uh, from 
1965 to 2012, who was also a Christian, he put it this way. He said, we live in a culture that has, for centuries now, cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. And then he was right to say, if you're going to be a doubter, be sure to doubt your doubts as well as your beliefs. Here's the point I'm making when it comes to this issue of doubt. I'm looking for my cross because I'm starting to sweat. It's all right, I can't find it. Doubt is not the barrier to faith. Unbelief is the barrier to faith. It's a matter of the heart, not a matter of the intellect. For the Christian, the existence of doubt is not the same as unbelief. It's what arises in us when our experiences do not match our expectations. John's doubt here comes from his affliction. His expectation of the Messiah's coming did not include his imprisonment. Jesus, this is not what victory is supposed to look like. Jesus says to John's disciples, go and you tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is assuring John, you are not wrong about me. I am the mightier one who's come to bring God's victory. There was this expectation that the promises that God made to his people in the book of Isaiah would be fulfilled when the Messiah came. Isaiah 61, the, the messianic servant song, the servant there declares the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness, instead of mourning, the garment of praise, instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. This is the year of jubilee that the servant was talking about when healing and wholeness and salvation and victory would come. And Jesus says, it's here because I'm here. All of those expectations and promises are fulfilled in me. The problem John the Baptist has was that when he was preaching, he said, the one who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He'll baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's going to clear out the threshing floor. And John is asking Jesus, where's the fire? Where's the fire? Where is the vengeance of God against evil? Isaiah didn't just say that the blind would see and the, and the deaf would hear and the poor would have good news preached to them. He said that the ruthless would come to nothing and the scoffer would cease and all who watch to do evil would be cut off. 
John is like, Isaiah said that a highway called the way of holiness shall be there. No unclean person would pass over it. Isaiah said the servant of the Lord would proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Where is it, Jesus? Why, if you're the one who's to come, am I in prison? Do you see it? Do you hear it? My expectations of how this thing is supposed to work is not lining up with reality. I have an expectation of how the Lord is supposed to fulfill the victory that he's promised. And Jesus' response to John is a gentle rebuke. Remember our context. Jesus has just gotten finished telling the 12 disciples what the cost of being a disciple looks like. Now here's a living, breathing example for them. In John the the Baptist, he's languishing in, in prison, a prison from which he will not be released, the place where he will be executed. The scandal of victory in Jesus Christ is that God is still patient with sinners. And this means that his people will have to live in the paradox of a victory over evil that allows suffering to continue. That's why Jesus says in verse number six of this passage, blessed or happy is the one who's not offended by me. Jesus is describing this blessedness, this happiness with a negative, who is not offended by me. The word that is translated as offended here doesn't simply mean taking offense at what Jesus says. What Jesus is describing is unbelief. It's the word uh, that, our, uh, that our English word scandal actually comes from. You can hear it in the pronunciation of the Greek word, which means to, to lead, to, to ruin, to give offense, to seduce, to sin. Jesus is referencing himself as the one who, through whom this offense, this, this ruin comes. You see, what Matthew is doing, Matthew is setting us up. He's setting us up. He's setting us up for what's going to happen later. What do I mean? Because we find this phrase uh, multiple times in Matthew. In chapter 13 and verse 57, the people in Jesus' hometown took offense at him. Same phrase. They were scandalized by him. Matthew says in chapter 13 and verse 58 that Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. When we get toward the end of the book and Jesus is at the Last Supper in the upper room celebrating the Passover with his disciples, Jesus says in chapter 26 and verse number 31, you will all fall away because of me. It's the same word. You will all be scandalized because of me. Peter says in chapter 26 and verse 33, even if everybody falls away because of you, even if all of them, Jesus, are scandalized by you, I'll never be scandalized by being associated with you. Jesus says to Peter, y'all know it. He says, I tell you this, Peter, tell you the truth, this very night before the rooster crows, you'll deny three times that you know me. All the disciples said the exact same thing. 
what happened? They were all scandalized by Jesus. Wanted nothing to do with him. See, look, why? Because his victory comes to the cross. His victory is an upside-down victory. The victory of God in the present world regularly looks like defeat. After Jesus sends John's disciples back with this corrective rebuke, he turns to the crowd and he begins to speak to them about John. And, and Jesus does not usually describe people in superlatives. So when he does, we want to pay attention. Jesus asks the crowd some questions in verse number seven. Why did you go out to the wilderness? To see a reed being blown to and fro by the wind? Why did you go out to the wilderness to see a man who's dressed in soft clothing? Clothing? He said, look, the people who wear soft clothing are in palaces, but why did you go out to see a prophet? He says, yes, and I tell you, even more than a prophet, he is the one concerning whom it is written, behold, I'm sending my messenger before you. He will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist among those born of women. Jesus helps the crowd understand who John is. John can't be disregarded. Thank you, brother. You, you helped me out because I was like, I need to find oh, look. I found it. All right, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Thank you. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Jesus helps the crowds understand who John is. John can, can be disregarded by them because he's in prison. They didn't get it. Jesus is going to say down in verse 18, right, John came neither eating nor drinking, and you say has a, he has a demon, but John was the greatest and more than a prophet because he has the unique office to herald Israel's Messiah. Not because of something in John, but because he was the one Malachi spoke of when Malachi said, when the Lord said through Malachi, I'm going to send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. He's Elijah who Malachi spoke of in chapter 4 and verse 5 of his book. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And yet the point of the superlative is to make the contrast that Jesus makes. As great as John is, he says, the one who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. Jesus isn't talking about, you know, levels of membership in his kingdom. Membership in the kingdom of heaven, it ain't like membership at your gym, you know, you know, gold and silver and platinum membership, or like when I'm trying to get miles with Delta to make sure I get my diamond membership so I can get them first class upgrades as I travel to suffer for the kingdom. But that's how the disciples think. You see, we, we actually find that out in chapter 20 of Matthew when John and James send their mama to Jesus to ask if they can have positions of power in Jesus' kingdom, sitting at his right hand and his left hand. That's, that's not how Jesus talks here. Jesus' statement is actually meant to shock us. He's talking about the great privilege it is, the immeasurable blessing of being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The shock value is that any old member in the kingdom is greater than John. 
John was great, Jesus' point is, but he stood at the edge. He was the last of his kind, standing at the end of the old age and looking into the new, but he wasn't all the way in. John's day was not the day of jubilee and victory. His day was one of desolation and exile and oppression, and the new age is the year of jubilee when the kingdom arrives in Jesus Christ. Just like that old American Express commercial used to say, membership has its privileges. Why is it a privilege to be citizens of Jesus' kingdom? Why is it better to be in his kingdom than out of it? Jesus continually puts himself at the center of God's kingdom, at the center of life, and the privilege of membership is clarity. The privilege of membership is clarity. The person who's least in the kingdom of heaven doesn't have more faith than John the Baptist. They have more clarity. Clarity on where your primary identity lies because you've unseen the unfolding of Jesus' ministry on your behalf. In the kingdom of heaven, the citizens of the kingdom seek to draw their primary sense of identity from their relationship with God, a relationship that they didn't establish, that they don't maintain, that can never be destroyed, and that's rooted in the deep, deep love of God. And why is that necessary? I thought we were talking about victory, Pastor. We are. We are. We see evil on the world stage and in our communities, and we wonder whether God is powerful enough to do anything about it. But the first place the victory of God is established is over us. The first place God comes to reign in victory and triumph is over our hearts. Uh, our grief and our devastation over war and gun violence and human trafficking and abuse and rampant poverty and systemic injustice and corporate greed and on and on and on. The list goes forever. Our grief over these things makes us doubt or even want to dismiss God. But the only way to lean into these things with any sense of hope and even a sense of supernatural peace is if we've experienced the victory of God personally. Have you experienced God conquering the evil of your heart? Have you experienced the reality that God's victory in the cross of Jesus Christ was for you? That his victory was so that you would be raised up to new life, so that you would know what victory feels like in a world that is, that is run over with evil. We need this kind of clarity because Jesus immediately moved from this statement about the privilege of citizenship in his kingdom to talk about suffering. That was going to be my second point but we're just staying with scandal, just an FYI. I had several S's, but we're just going to go with the main one. Right after 
He says that the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. He says in verse 12, for from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. There are all kinds of interpretations about the, and translations of this verse. What is he saying? What does it mean? But the essence of it is negative in its force. Jesus is issuing a warning to his disciples to prepare for violence. The kind of violence that John is as Jesus, experiencing as Jesus is talking. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The sense of that statement is most likely the, the straining and the difficulty with which the kingdom of heaven advances in this violent world. I think the best translation of the English Bibles of this uh, text, this verse is a New Living Translation's rendering of the Greek text. It, it says, and from the time John the Baptist began preaching until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people are attacking it. The kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and violent people are continuing to attack it. The advancement of God's kingdom cannot be stopped, but it's no easy road because it's constantly under attack. It's constantly under assault. The presence and the message of the kingdom often creates a violent response because it includes the necessity of having the Lord at the center of our existence and not ourselves. As I said, kingdom comes with the promise of peace. But the only way we can know how to pursue peace in this world is through violence. That's because peace, whether it be nations at war, families with internal strife, whatever it is, peace for us means having things the way we want them. We live in Washington, D.C. I mean, why, why, why is it that we can't achieve any substantive work and policies from our politicians. Why? It's because in large part the way we get life as we want it in America is to beat the other party. It's to have the majority, to be in control, but that's not the way to peace. That's, the only, that's only the way to ongoing strife. The kingdom, Stanley Howard again, comes through peace brought by Jesus. The kingdom, this kingdom is not some ideal of peace that requires the use of violence for its realization. We live life as if we are our own lords, our own creators. We respond violently to anyone who might challenge our presumption that we are in control of our existence. We do not want to be reminded that when all is said and done, we will all be dead. The kingdom Jesus brings is one of gentleness and humility that cannot help but reveal the violence of this world. So if you are a citizen of the kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ, it's necessary to have clarity about your unearned privilege because what Jesus says and does always invites controversy and resistance. He has mostly a negative tone in our text, 
because he's primarily rebuking those who are offended by him. Let me offer you a word of encouragement and exhortation, especially if you find yourself among those struggling to believe, especially if you find yourself among those offended by the things Jesus says and does. Don't be content to dismiss the struggle. Don't be content to ignore what's offending you. God can handle it. That's part of the the scandal of his love. The love that moves the sun and the stars in their course is the same love that is found in Jesus. And this means his love is married to power. He does not dismiss you as quickly as you might want to dismiss him. So don't ignore the struggle. Don't dismiss it. Let me encourage you to hear Jesus saying to you that you got to get off the throne. You don't call the shots in this deal. I can issue you this encouragement because Jesus issues it in verse 15. He who has ears, he says, let him hear. Anyone who has ears should hear, he says, and listen and understand what I'm saying. He asks this question. He says, in a tone of frustration, but to what shall I compare this generation? He says, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't, you didn't mourn. Children love to play games, right? And usually when they make up games, somebody's in charge. <laughs> the, the, the child that takes charge will assign roles and responsibilities. You play so-and-so, and you play such-and-such. And And every once in a while, the child who has been assigned a role in the playtime production uh, that he or she doesn't want resists their assignment. (laughs) I don't want to be so-and-so. I don't want to play that. I'm not playing anymore. You know, I'm sure this is not with any of the children in here. But sometimes that leads to verbal and even physical conflict among the children. Jesus says to the crowds, this generation is like a group of children playing together. Some want a make-believe wedding. I'll be the musician, you two be the bride and the groom dancing, but somebody doesn't want to do a wedding. Okay, let's play make-believe funeral. I'll do the funeral song, and you all will be the people who mourn, but somebody doesn't want to play the funeral either. That's how it is with this generation, Jesus says. John and Jesus are the ones who are declaring what time it is. John came neither eating or drinking. John's diet was locusts and wild honey. John ate meagerly and impoverished life, telling this generation it was a time to mourn over their sin. The king was coming, and they weren't ready to receive him. People might have liked listening to him, but they thought he was a little cuckoo. We're not going to play along with you and mourn, John. In fact, you might even have a demon. 
And then Jesus talks about himself. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. The Son of Man comes to celebrate the arrival of the kingdom. Good news, jubilee, victory. Jesus would go to people's homes and eat and drink and share the good news of God's love and grace for those who repent. And that generation said, we're not celebrating with you. We don't like the people you're hanging out with. You're a glutton and a drunkard. You're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We don't like what your victory looks like. It's not just that generation caught in the snare and scandal of never being satisfied or pleased with Jesus, but Jesus is right. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. That is, wisdom is proven right by its results. Jesus Christ is the victory of God and the wisdom of God. And dissatisfaction with Jesus still exists because in the wisdom of God, he chose what is foolish in the world to shame those who are wise in the world. He chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world so that no one is able to boast in the presence of God. And that is not the victory we were expecting. So what do we do? Three quick things and I'm done. Three quick things, and these are very quick things. I always like to say these are Presbyterian quick things, not a Baptist quick things, which means I'm almost, I really am almost done. Three things. First, what do we do? First, don't let your doubts be a barrier to belief. Every Sunday, we did it this morning, after the confession of sin You hear the minister, as you heard Joel this morning, speak words of assurance and encouragement from the scriptures. Why do we do that? It's because week by week, day by day, moment by moment, we need to hear the words of assurance from God to deal with the ever-lurking doubt that exists in our lives, especially when we see evil triumphing. Second, in a few short weeks, we'll be in the season of Advent and One of my favorite things to to do during Advent is return to Fleming Rutledge's book on that subject. In the section that she titles, Looking into the Heart of Darkness, she says this, to grasp the depth of the human predicament, one has to be willing to enter into the very worst. This is not the same thing as going to horror films, which are essentially entertainment. Entering into the very worst means giving serious consideration to the most hopeless situations. For for instance, a facility for the most profound cases of developmental disability. What hope is there for a ward of people who will never sit up, walk, speak, or feed themselves? Tourists go to the site of Auschwitz, Birkenau, and take pictures, but who can really imagine the smells and sounds of the most depraved of all situations. She says the tourist can turn away in relief and go to lunch. To know the victory of God through faith in Jesus Christ is to know that we are not tourists who turn away from the ugliness of evil and go to lunch. No, 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 no. The fact that he even came into this broken and evil and violent world tells us he calls us to follow him there in the hope of his victory. As his people, we can look evil squarely in the face without fear and labor as peacemakers in the midst of the strife because we know the victorious one. Last, third, and not least, We keep coming here to this table. We keep, what do we do? We keep coming to this table. This table is the place 
where the scandalous love and victory of God is displayed in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and it meets us again and again. It is the place where we receive ever new clarity about the privilege of being citizens of his kingdom, where in a deeply mysterious way, he meets us and he satisfies us. It is where, through faith, we are satisfied with his victory. And we are assured of our victory in him. It's where he blesses us with the strength to dance to the tune that he plays. Even if it comes with a heavy dose of rejection and misunderstanding in this life. From those who don't yet see the upside down nature of his victory. We keep coming to the table. We keep looking evil in the face and saying you will not win. And we keep, re we keep rejecting our doubts as barriers to belief. We might know for sure the victory of God. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.